0: In 1945, much of the world was at war. The chief allied powers of Great Britain, France, the United States, the Soviet Union, and China were fighting the Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan. In August of 1945, the United States carried out the largest and final attack of the war. American soldiers dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. They landed on two cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Less than a year later, American journalist John Hersey traveled to Hiroshima and interviewed survivors of the bombing. And each one
1: of them experiences it as uh, what one of them called a noiseless flash, right? that they would have uh, suddenly experienced an incredibly bright light um, and often complete silence, um, which is a kind of a sound vacuum that would have resulted from, um, from the bomb's explosion. Um, and only then followed by uh, incredible noise, incredible heat, uh, and fire, um, the extent of which would have varied depending on how close they were. My name is Chris Capazzola. I'm a professor
0: of history at MIT. When the United States dropped these bombs on Japan, they ended World War II. The Allied powers won the war. The bombs ended years of fighting and brought a period of peace to the world. This peace narrative told only one side of the story, the side of the Allied forces and their families waiting at home. But there was another side to the story. This new weapon was extremely powerful and destructive, and the world had not fully realized its implications. With multiple countries developing nuclear weapons of their own, the world needed to see the other side of the story, and John Hersey aimed to tell it. In his article titled, Hiroshima, originally published in a 1946 issue of the New Yorker magazine, Hersey shared the personal stories of six civilians who survived the bombing. They're all uh, doctors, clergy,
1: women. Uh, they're not people who played any role in the dropping of the bomb. Uh, they're not many people who had, who had fought against any American reader's sons in battle. And, and I think that's important for the the project of, of humanizing the Japanese that he's embarked on.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Christopher Capazzola to discuss John Hersey's Hiroshima. John Hersey was born in China in 1914 to two American Protestant missionaries. He moved from China to the United States when he was 10 years old. He went to prep school in New England and then studied at Yale University.
1: He came out of a certain world of journalism um, called the Time-Life Empire. Uh, he followed the same path as the editor of Time magazine, Henry Luce, um, and gone into this world of time and life, which was designed to bring to ordinary Americans the news with a human angle. And time did it through storytelling, life did it through images, um, and that's the world that Hersey was writing in um, even before World War II. Um, Then the war comes, and he very quickly dives into war journalism and and war correspondence, both in Europe and in the Pacific.
0: Hersey made a name for himself as a journalist covering the Second World War. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his 1942 book, Men on Bataan, which was about General Douglas MacArthur and the Battle of Bataan in World War II. When the war was over, Hersey started looking for something new to cover.
1: And he convinces
0: um, the magazine editors at The New Yorker uh, to send him to Japan. How do his ideas um, of writing this work in in a particular way come about?
1: It's very hard for us to reconstruct this story because Hersey himself was very private. Um, uh, But we do know that he didn't set out to write this book this way. He thought he might talk to American military officials or even Japanese military officials. Um, Those avenues were very quickly cut off for him. Um, that censorship during the, the U.S. occupation of Japan was very strict, um, and there was no, no way to do that. Um, but by 1946, which was when Hersey was doing most of his reporting, um, the actual sort of impact of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima was sort of a done, an, an old story. Um, and so he got permission to go to Hiroshima itself, to the city, uh, and he didn't quite know what he was looking for there, um, but he once he got
0: there, I think something clicked. Hersey was among some of the first reporters in post-war Japan. He spent time there during the winter of 1945-46, reporting on the reconstruction of the country for the New Yorker. After his initial reporting, Hersey returned home to the United States with an idea, to tell the story of the atomic bombs through the experiences of Japanese survivors. Once his editor approved the story, Hersey returned to Hiroshima in May of 1946 and spent three weeks interviewing survivors. Could you tell us broadly what led to the decision to drop these two bombs? From the very beginning of the war,
1: um, American scientists and military officials wanted to use every technological development that they could. Um, And the idea of developing an atomic bomb was um, was very quickly adopted as a goal um, that was initially thought to be used against Germany. Um, Germany uh, surrenders before uh, the bomb is developed and tested first in July of 1945 um, and by that point um, the the logic of bringing the bomb to use and using it against Japan is unstoppable. Um, So it's tested in mid-July 1945 um, in New Mexico uh, and then dropped first on August 6th in Hiroshima uh, and then a second bomb on August 9th, 1945 in Nagasaki. Um, There was, as many historians will say, no one moment um, at which America decided to drop the bomb. Um, There were very early on decisions to develop it um, which always implied that it was to being developed in order to be used. Um, but as soon as it was used, um, it generated a new conversation that was political, moral, ethical, and religious um, about what, what it meant that it had been used. Uh, and that's the conversation that Hersey is participating in a year afterward.
0: And so were the justifications for example, the ones that I heard all growing up and continue to hear that the Japanese army would never have surrendered and that, you know, millions more lives would have been lost. Was that story told through the newspaper, through press releases, you know, by the American government, by media supporters?
1: That story was told, um, not in August of 1945, um, when, of course, it's its use was a complete surprise to the world. Uh, But that story develops very quickly. Um, And in some ways, there's a counter narrative um, that develops against um, even Hersey's book, Hiroshima, developed in large part um, by Henry Stimson, who had been Secretary of War during the Second World War um, and played a key role in the dropping of the atomic bomb. And Hersey gives all the arguments that we are now familiar with that it brought the war to a faster end, uh, that it prevented a land invasion of Japan. Those counterfactuals may or may not be true. We'll never know. Um, But we do know that that story develops at the same time that another conversation is going on about what does it mean for America
0: that we have developed and used this bomb. And could you help us understand the history or the context of attacking civilians in warfare.
1: It is certainly the case that there were norms against targeting civilians in the laws of war, um, which were not uniformly adhered to, um, and were not uniformly thought to be applicable in non-Western contexts. So in European wars of colonialism, in US wars of native dispossession, the, the assault on civilian populations was quite regularly practiced. Um, so in some ways, the, the First and then, of course, the, more particularly, the Second World War brings to the West um, practices that it had been, already been undertaking um, in other contexts. But aerial warfare and aerial bombardment, of course, then make this even more devastating. Um, and that for many people brings levels of terror um, that, uh, that actually sort of um, amplify the
0: destructiveness of war. And so um, they tested the first operational atomic bomb in New Mexico in July of 1945. And the military and government officials who witnessed this still thought it was appropriate (laughs) to drop this on a human city.
1: Yes, there was some hesitation among some of the atomic scientists at Los Alamos um, who uh, advocated to indirectly um, eventually uh, to the new president, uh, Harry Truman um, to suggest that perhaps the Japanese could be warned about the bomb or that it would be uh, it could be dropped in some sort of in the middle of nowhere, essentially, uh, to demonstrate its force. Um, and that decision was, or that that proposal was never really taken seriously. Uh, and so I think it's uh, it was you know like I said it was it was built
0: to be dropped. So let's now um, tell us about um, the actual dropping of the bomb and what it did to the city.
1: Our best understanding of what that was like comes from John Hersey himself. Um, that the official accounts were really uncertain, um, That in part because Americans didn't want to reveal too much information besides um, you know, the, the awesome power of the weapon itself. Um, and the Japanese actually wanted to uh, cover some of this information from their own population, um, where they um, announced merely that uh, you know a new type of bomb was used. Details are being investigated um, in a very terse um, one paragraph news account in Japanese news uh, papers but the the bomb was dropped from uh, a b twenty nine by a small crew um, that very quickly. Uh, left the bombing site. Um, So that's what it looks like from the top down. Um, What it was like from the the, the ground up is in fact how Hiroshima opens um, as a book.
0: In Hiroshima, Hersey takes a new approach to storytelling, which becomes the foundation for a type of reporting called new journalism. This approach illustrates an event through the subjective experiences of individuals, rather than purely objective facts. Hersey knew the power in letting those who were near the explosions share their personal experiences. He doesn't, in his book,
1: ever tell you how many people died. He never gives you a number. He tells you what happened to particular people, right, or in particular places. Of course, all of the people that Hersey interviewed were far enough from the the bomb center um, that they survived. Um, You know, tens of thousands did not. Uh, And... So in that sense, we, you know, we know their stories, um, but they, all of them um, reflected on the sound and the silence of it, um, and also on the, the flash of light.
0: So although it's probably impossible to know for certain, what are the estimates of how many people died in, uh, from the immediate bombing?
1: The most accurate estimates that we have actually come from the U.S. government um, in the accounting that they did, based on wartime population and um, sort of hospital counts in the immediate aftermath of of the war, uh, that imagined about eight, or that estimated about eighty thousand people were killed um, in the immediate uh, dropping of the bomb. The harder number to calculate is, is the lifetime impact of exposure to radiation um, and so on, um, which we certainly know, you know lasted for, for years and decades, in fact, among some of the people that Hersey interviewed. Uh, and we know from that that people within uh, about a half a mile um, of the epicenter of the bomb, um, many of them would have died instantly um, through the intense heat of the explosion itself. They would have, in fact, maybe not even perceived uh, the explosion. They would have died so quickly. Um, beyond that, um, the thousands of others would have died through, through the heat, through burning. He gives an example, a very evocative one, of, of a man who was wearing suspenders, right? Um, and, you know, scarred um, more intensely where this, less intensely where the suspenders were. These kinds of stories help us imagine
0: the physical trauma um, of of the bombing. So let's let's now learn more about Hersey's work. So was this originally a magazine project? Yes. So the book actually
1: starts um, as an, a magazine assignment um, to find, in some ways, a kind of a a human story of the dropping of the bomb. Um, and Hersey's account, um, as he writes it up, is it comes in longer than anyone expected. Um, it comes in at, at about 30,000 words, um, which is a lot longer than a magazine article. Uh, but Hersey really wanted to tell these six contrasting stories and to follow them through to a full year after the dropping of the bomb. Right, And he finds through contacts six individuals, uh, four men and, and two women. Um, two are doctors. Uh, two of the men, uh, two of the men are ministers. One um, is a Methodist minister of a Japanese person who is a Methodist minister. The other is a German exile um, living in Japan during the war. Um, and two women. One is an older woman, um, and one is a, a young woman who works in a in a military factory. Hersey does not speak Japanese. Um, so he's working with a translator uh, for this entire project. And he sort of writes up this enormous uh, account, um, sends it to his editors, um, uh, you know, fully expecting for it to be rejected and thinking that he'll, well, maybe I'll publish it as a book instead. Um, And then, of course, um, you know, this is one of the most famous stories in New Yorker reader history, right, Uh, is that they published the article as an entire issue of the magazine um, in August of 1946, one year after the dropping of the bomb. Um, And that, too, was kept secret um, from the reading public. Um, And so only a handful of people actually knew that this was going to be published in this way. Uh, if you pick up the cover of the magazine, which you can um, find online it's a it's a drawing of a picnic. Um, it seems like a pleasant summer undertaking um, but um, then you open it up and you realize um, what
0: what 's inside and what What was it like for the new yorker readers? Uh, what kind of effect did this have on on the public and you know it, kind of the immediate uh national reaction to it?
1: Um, it was an immediate
0: sensation um it was um
1: you know by some measures still the the most sought after um new yorker magazine ever and um, and was very quickly sort of shared in other formats um, read over the radio um, to national audiences in its entirety um, and very quickly turned into a book
0: can you tell us um, a little bit more about um you know, these people and their, and their stories and how Hersey writes about them?
1: What Hersey does is he sort of tracks in this incredibly matter-of-fact, deadpan style, what they did. Um, and Hersey himself is not present in the book. Um, he is playing the role of the um, objective reporter, which at a time just a year after this was our enemy, is in fact not an objective thing to do at all. Um, but by writing in that objective journalistic style, um, by focusing on the little detail. Um, you know, so one of the, the young woman he follows, Miss Sasaki, uh, it, you know, her foot is broken um, on, at the moment of the bombing when a bookshelf falls on her ankle. Um, and, and Hersey uses a detail like that to make you think about, um, you know, what kind of a world do we live in um, that we treasure knowledge and destroy it at the same time. Um, those kinds of details, brief details about weather, about which street someone took. Uh, and that's key, I think, to getting American readers to stop reading this like the war propaganda that they have been reading for the last five years, and start reading it like something else. Um, And I think that's the most important thing that Hersey does was in choosing not so much who to write about, um, you know, there are six almost um, random people, but how to write about them.
0: And so um, how did this change minds um, among its readers?
1: One way to find out is to see, you know, what what did people say about it at the time, um, that the New Yorker received hundreds of letters from readers, um, and a historian, Paul Boyer, has gone through those letters um, at the New Yorker archives. Uh, and what he was really struck by was the fact that people did not actually write in to say, oh, this is a terrible weapon, Um, we should never use it again. What they mostly said was, um, thank you for helping me understand this. Um, Thank you for helping me understand the implications of this weapon. Um, And I think uh, that's the way in which it changed Americans, which might not be what Hersey wanted or even what we might wish. Um, It didn't make them opponents of war or of atomic weapons, but in fact reconciled them, Americans in particular, um, to what this power was um, and what this new atomic age was going to
0: mean. How did this work influence the broader conversation and debate about... Atomic weapons, about the atomic age.
1: Hiroshima participates in a debate that's going on in 1946 about what to do with atomic knowledge, um, which is a broader category than just atomic weapons. Um, That Americans and the world knew that this bomb had been developed. They also knew that this technology could be put to many uses. Um, And so there is a brief effort In the immediate aftermath of the war to explore peaceful and cooperative international uses for atomic knowledge. Um, And there's a hope um, that this new organization called the United Nations um, might be uh, the way to do this. Um, And David Lilienthal, who had been the the head of the Tennessee Valley Authority under FDR in the 1930s, um, is sort of put in charge of trying to find peaceful uses for atomic energy Um, But uh, as the the Cold War hardens um, in 1946 and 1947, um, this becomes almost impossible. Um, And by 1948 and 49, once the Soviets have exploded their own atomic device, um, cooperation
0: around atomic knowledge um, is completely off the table. Although Hersey's Hiroshima didn't have a strong political influence in the years immediately following publication, it got picked up again during the anti-nuclear movement of the 1980s. And in that time period, it is actually doing a lot of the work
1: for readers that, um, that it didn't do in 1946. If in 1946, it reconciled Americans to the fact that they were now an atomic power. In the 1980s, it helped explain to the world uh, sort of what the implications of the bomb were. And, you know, so this is the moment um, for people who lived through the 80s. This is the moment of the day after of, you know, sort of all kinds of, um, you know, fears of, of nuclear war um, during the, the late Cold War. Um, and also of the world's largest peace social movement. Um, That's the, the movement for the nuclear freeze, um, which was on both sides of the Iron Curtain in Europe and the United States, uh, the 1983 march for the freeze was the, the largest protest in American history before the Women's March in 2017. Um, and Hiroshima is part of that. And in fact, Hersey writes a whole other chapter um, for the book in, in 1984. Uh, and I think that the, it just shows that this is a
0: book that has a long life that spans the century. The nuclear freeze campaign was a mass movement in the United States in the 1980s. Their goal was for the United States and the Soviet Union to agree to halt all production, testing, and deployment of nuclear weapons. And that freeze movement did lead to policy changes and uh, treaties. Is that is that correct?
1: Um, yes. I mean, I think that the the nuclear freeze movement um, never quite achieved its goals, um, uh, but it certainly did. Um, led to um, pressures to, to reduce the number of, of US weapons that were stationed on European soil. Um, and President Reagan took inspiration from it. Um, partly from its content, but partly also to block its momentum uh, to begin sort of greater dialogue um, with his Soviet counterparts, eventually with Mikhail Gorbachev, um, that led to nuclear agreements um, that proved enduring um, until our current administration.
0: Is there still a recognizable international peace movement that that tracks some of its heritage to the the nuclear arms race and, and the battle against it?
1: Um, Absolutely. Um, And some of that effort continued around nuclear, uh, not only nuclear weapons, but also nuclear power, particularly in the wake of the the explosions at Chernobyl, Um, but also went into uh, other forms of of weapons such as landmines, chemical weapons and biological weapons, and that are really sort of seeking to kind of keep these questions of, of warfare and technology on the table. Um, and i think uh, is also concerned for today very much about what would be the implications of of you know sort of non human warfare right um you know of sort of un- unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, other kinds of technologies that may be developed without the kind of consideration of the implications of use as was also the case in nineteen forty five i think that we have no guarantees um, that norms um, against their use will will persist um, unless we, as, as a people, um, and not just from one country, but from all of them, uh, continue to affirm um, that their use is beyond the norm. Um, and particularly at a time uh, in the United States and other countries um, where norms of lawful behavior are corroding. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, whether we owe it to the people who survived Hiroshima, um, the people who, um, you know, who lived through World War II more generally, um, or the people, you know, who marched in 1983, um, you know, we need to sort of be more clear about that now, um, because uh, it could all happen really quite quickly. Um, And once those norms uh, if if norms around nuclear use um, failed, then there's no solution.
0: I wonder if you could comment now on how did this work affect journalism more broadly as a field, and and you know what influences do you see among journalists today?
1: Hersey influenced a, a generation of of journalists who I think understood. That a a human story was the way into an enormous um, phenomenon. You find it in a lot of World War II coverage, Um, the accounts of Ernie Pyle, who wrote about the Second World War. You know, following one soldier, following one town, one community, um, was a way to humanize a, a global conflict. Um, and that persists, um, and we now almost take that for granted, um, whereas for readers in the 1940s, this was somewhat new. Um, but I think we are in some ways still waiting for um, you know, for someone to write um, you know, a book like Hiroshima um, about the people who are on the, on the other end of American drone strikes, um, of, of American war efforts in, in the 21st century
0: imagine you're at a, you're at a cocktail party, and some graduate student comes up to you and says, "Professor, h- how did Hiroshima change the world? How do you respond to to her in in one or two sentences
1: John Hersey took the atomic bomb, which we knew only from thirty thousand feet as the image of the mushroom cloud that Americans dropped on. A place that was only a name and turned it into a real place with real people who were not so different from us and by doing that forces us as readers to think about the implications of the development and use of atomic weapons I would end, I guess, with, um, with one of the quotes that's on, the, on the, the cover of the sort of tattered paperback copy that I have, um, which is from one of the first reviews that the, the book received in a magazine called The Saturday Review, um, which said, everyone who can read should read this. Um, and i endorse that um, fully.
0: Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French, our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pecci. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.